Yo, what is up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the Spielberg! <laughs> I Let's am Austin Love Hayden you, Smith, and I'm joined here by the uh, exuberant Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan. Sup, film fans? And we've got Raymond. Hello, fellow Gunters. It is I, Raymond, first to the key. And ding, 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 <laughs> we're going to be talking about a controversial film this week, and I have a feeling that there might be some hot takes on either side. Um, I mean, it's controversial because the film got a real lukewarm reception, and I put out some some calls on my social medias, on Insta and on Twitter, and was like, what do you guys think of this film? And let me just say that people were not enthusiastic about this film. Not talking about it, like they're down to talk about it, but they want to talk about how much they want to shit on it. Is what they want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Okay. Okay, so uh, we are going to be talking about Steven Spielberg's 2018 effort, the adaptation of Ready Player One, as I said, directed by the incomparable Steven Spielberg, adapted from the wildly popular debut dystopian novel by Ernest Klein, who also co-wrote the screenplay with Zach Penn, and it stars Ty Sheridan, Olivia Cook. Ben Mendelsohn, shout out to the Aussies. TJ Miller, who I thought got canceled, but when I heard his voice, I was like, cool, I guess he hasn't been canceled. Simon This was pre cancellation. Oh, this yeah. was pre cancellation. Okay. Uh, Lena Waite, uh, Hannah John Kamen, if you guys watched Killjoys on Sci Fi, I love her. And of course, the fabulous Mark Rylance. So uh, yeah, let's chat about this film. Let's do first impressions. Ryan, since yeah. yeah, Ryan, since you were out for a week, let's give you the first go here. What do you think about this? First time you saw it, and then what was it like revisiting it? I was surprised when you just said that it got a lukewarm response because mm. I just looked up the I, – I remember it getting everyone liking it. I, I, uh, and some uh, – the, the, the biggest advocates of the book maybe not liking it as much. Mm. Uh, that was a contention. But then I just looked up the Rotten Tomatoes. It's got a – what? It's got a – 72% fresh for critics, 77% audience. I think Interesting. this movie's okay. pretty liked. Yeah. Not loved, but liked. Interesting. Um, and, and and I universally really like this movie. And I love it. You know, I'd put it on my 10-point scale. I'd put it at an 8, which is great. It's not amazing, which is a 9. It's not a must-see, which is a 10. It's not a good, which is a 7. It's a great. So, I, and, and I thought that the same, this exact same thing thing too it's a fun movie it's a fun spielberg movie especially he took the book which i have not read i've seen the thuck notes on it though um <laughs> which is essentially the same thing as reading. shout out to greg uh, what up greg yeah <laughs> shout out to greg edwards and i w w what i remember from when this book from, from when this movie came out was how cool it was that steven spielberg was directing it because it's such a meta directing choice because all of the references are about his movies and movies around his era and really being super nostalgia nostalgic about his films and that era of films and that was so a uh, cool choice and i and i still think that like it, it it was awesome that he directed this movie still to this day i think that more than any other film i can think of this movie has had a complete 180 in acceptance of like on the on the cultural level. Like I remember, everyone was super pumped about the book, and, and it almost was like uh, uh, really innovative to how 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 many references and cult, pop culture stuff was in it. Like, wow, this movie is totally just about pop culture, and it's for pop people that are obsessed with pop culture, and it's such a representative book of the times. And now I feel like it's hack. 
It's where, where if you had that many pop culture references in your movie, it's just kind of like, okay, you're just appealing to the base fanboy lowest common denominator nerd that everyone's trying to monetize and it's not cool and fresh anymore. And I think that that kind of lends itself to people hating on it today in 2020 is my theory. Okay. Yeah. Raymond, what are your thoughts? Uh, I went and saw this in theaters and um, rewatched it uh, for the podcast. I also, uh, I read the book this past weekend uh, just to kind of get um, an idea of some, you know, differences and stuff what have you uh i think that the movie the movie's fine it's you know it's i i don't see any reason to like shit on it really i think it's it's good popcorn filmmaking um i i'd say it's right in the middle of the road for me maybe a, a five or a gentleman's six um a five but, is a poor to okay from my rating but that's we have our oh, whatever i mean five. five five out of ten right down the middle <laughs> um <laughs> but uh i i think the the movie's fun. It you know it goes by quickly enough for a two hour twenty minute movie. I think it's it's well structured, well paced, and um, it kind of makes the the stuff that is really really nauseating about the book far more palatable because in the book there's like paragraphs on paragraphs of descriptions about all of these arcane pop culture artifacts whereas in the movie those things are just kind of floating through the background or he shows up for the race in the DeLorean whereas in the book he has to go into painstaking detail about that DeLorean and all the little easter eggs that are hidden within it from uh from other famous pop culture cars but when you see it in the movie it's just oh there's the DeLorean um, so I, uh, yeah, I, I thought this was fun. I enjoyed rewatching it. I, I watched all the special features. There's a lot of really, really cool technique that went into this film. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't say that I would recommend the book, but, uh, we're here today to talk about the movie. Yeah. I mean, okay. So this is the first time that I saw it. Um, I'm just taking down a note cause I really want to get back to nostalgia, Easter eggs and things like that. We'll, but we'll get to that after the recap. This is the first time that I saw the film and I had heard wow. from filmmaking friends, some pretty harsh critiques. Um, and then I had also heard from some more like we might, might say fanboy fangirl types that it wasn't a good movie either. So I kind of went in maybe with really low expectations and to be honest, I really enjoyed it. I I didn't love it. Um, What I think a lot of the disparity comes from, and I think this happens a lot in our lives, right? Like our expectations versus what happens in reality. So there's two main expectations here. One, big blockbuster film based on a popular book. So there's a lot of kind of expectation and anticipation going in. The second one is that this is Steven Spielberg we're talking about here. Does this film kind of meet the, um, the status of a Spielberg property like is this absolutely yeah so see you think absolutely so i think for a lot of people though it's not up to the 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 quality of the material of a spielberg film now spielberg does well they say with handling it but the claim is that it's a little bit of a lesser product for him to deal with and that he should spend his time on prestige pieces like lincoln and shit like that and we'll get to a voicemail later in the day that uh, actually a director friend um is going to be kind of like guest commenting on making a similar come so i had heard that coming in so my expectations were very low which might have been a good thing because i had a really great time 
I've had a really kind of like busy, crazy, stressful week managing multiple things. And to be able to sit there for two hours and just indulge myself in nostalgia, music that I love, video game stuff. And then I think there's some really interesting themes here with regards to virtual reality and um, the difference between reality versus like a a mediated reality or a simulated reality. Um, I think there's... You know, I got some Willy Wonka vibes, which is that's one of my favorite movies of all time. It is very derivative. Consequences. Consequences, choice, uh, making the right decisions. I mean, I think there's a lot of cool stuff to talk about. So I'm going to split the difference between you. I wouldn't say an eight and I wouldn't say a five. I'm going to say a seven. That's a little bit more towards the Ryan uh, end of it. But I'm going to say I had a seven. I had a really nice time. And sometimes it's good to just do that. And then if you want to go watch, and I tweeted about this, you want to go watch Belatar's Satan Tango or Turin Horse or whatever afterwards to get your art film fixed, then do it. But for a fun romp, I had a good time. Go ahead. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'd like to comment on, on the Spielberg thing because he's on the record as saying that he does his what he wants to do at this point, but he does one every once in a while for the people, like every third movie. That's what his words. Like a Jurassic Park is for the people and Indiana Jones. Let's War do the it worlds. for the people. Then he'll make fucking Lincoln in the Post. Yeah, War of the Worlds. Perfect for example. Because yeah. uh, he likes – he's a populist filmmaker, which is what I love about him. And and But then he does stuff that interests him. So he, every movie can't be the fucking Post, man. You know, like, like – like, uh, you need a Ready Player One every once in a while. And I do agree, though, it is second-tier Spielberg. It's not – it, of course, does not live up. I would never say it's in the same category or stratosphere. It's Jaws. Of, yeah, <laughs> of a Jaws, a Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a Schindler's List, all that kind of shit. But, like, it's – I think it's perfectly good movie. Great movie. Great Spielberg movie. But the thing I really respect about Steven Spielberg taking this property, whether I'm a huge fan of it or not, I like that he's an old dog who keeps trying to learn new tricks because there was there was a lot of stuff behind the camera that had to happen for this movie that he had never done before, like using a virtual camera within a virtual world. Like there, there were so many layers to this process. Uh, watching an interview with him about the making of this film, he said it was like directing four different movies at once because there were just so many different layers to mm. its its performances in a physical space and performances in a virtual space and then they have the the performances on the mocap screen and the performances in the real world segment so it is I, I even if I'm not crazy about the movie I do have to give it up for Steven Spielberg for you, you know someone of his pedigree could just be resting on his laurels at this point in his career but uh, I, I admire his tenacity and his willingness to try things uh, try new, uh, new new techniques and new things and it looks freaking great and the pacing is good and yeah so I that is big big ups to him for learning those new skills and the fact that like that one shot where it's every single character like going toward, <laughs> going at the same time and it's just like a uh, total sensory overload and you're like wait a minute I'm uh a 77-year-old man directed this? Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. Like, it, 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 it props to him for keeping it up. He, he joins the ranks of, like, William Friedkin and Martin Scorsese, who are still keeping it real in their mm. super old age. Yeah, so shouts to him. Keep doing your thing, Stephen. We love you. Okay, so let's go into the recap here. So, the year is 2045. Everyone is perpetually attached to their VR headsets where they enter a world called Oasis, which stands for, with a great, if not all subtle name, ontologically anthropocentric sensory immersive simulation. That's wonderful. There's so much philosophical material there, too, that we can really dig into that. But later, later, later. So, but Oasis is a world that's created by James Halliday and Ogden Morrow of, again, the not so subtly named Gregarious Games. 
After Halliday dies, a pre-recorded message is played that details how an Easter egg is hidden in Oasis that grants ownership of the platform to the first person to find it. Of course, multiple interests have formed to get this Easter egg, most notably the CEO of Innovative Online Industries, that's IOI, Nolan Sorrento, who wants to control Oasis so that he can insert ads into it. And this is all sounding very familiar, right? Think about digital platforms. Anyway, uh, our protagonist, though, is Wade Watts, and his avatar is Parzival, and he and his best friend, how do you say it? H is a badass a badass Oasis player, and then, of course, they're joined by Artemis, who is also a badass. They take on the first challenge. Wade wins. He gets the copper key out of the three keys that they need to get, while Artemis, H, and his friends, Dato and Sho, all win afterwards. So they form the top five on the board, which are called the high five on the Oasis scoreboard. But when Wade's real identity is discovered behind his avatar, Nolan Sorrento attempts to bribe him so that Sorrento can gain control of Oasis. Wade rejects the offer, and Sorrento ends up bombing Wade's house, killing loads of people in the process. Now, Wade and Artemis, whose real name is Samantha, they end up meeting in real life, and they have like a little romance, and they team up uh, with Samantha welcoming Wade to the Rebellion. They end up solving the second challenge and win the Jade Key, and soon after, Samantha gets captured and is held captive because of her father's debts, but she ends up escaping after hacking Sorrento's Oasis rig. Now, the third challenge is found on Planet Doom, which is the most treacherous of all the zones within Oasis, and in this final challenge, players must guess Halliday's favorite Atari 2600 game and earn the Crystal Key. Uh, Samantha and the High Five crew, they end up trying to race to get to the main console, but Sorrento detonates this gnarly bomb, wiping out all the avatars on Planet Doom. But Wade slash Parzival survives because he has an extra life coin that he earlier won in a bet with the curator. Wade then plays the 1980 game Adventure and wins the Crystal Key. He then uses all three keys to enter the treasure room where he's offered to sign the contract to take ownership of Oasis. But Wade realizes that this is a test and does not sign it, at which point Halliday appears and hands over the Easter egg and expresses regret for having failed to live life more. Now Sorrento is then arrested because of the bombing and then Ogden Morrow comes back. He appears, played by Simon Pegg revealing that he's actually the curator who gave the extra life to Wade in the earlier bet, and Wade decides to run Oasis with the High Five crew, and then he invites Ogden to join them as a consultant. Happy ending. Uh, The IOI uh, loyalty centers are all closed down, and then High Five make the controversial decision to close down the Oasis every Tuesday and Thursday so that people can spend a little much-needed time in quote-unquote reality. All right, now, before we get into uh, all of the goodies here, I do want to give a shout-out to our sponsor for this week's episode, which is NordVPN. So, look, we talk about this all the time, and this is uh, just a a subtle fact that our privacy is being encroached on more and more and more. There's surveillance and monitoring and all of these things that... You know, it it gets to be a little bit disconcerting with regards, especially to people who enjoy freedom and want to be able to kind of pursue things on the Internet, which is where our life is lived more and more um, with any sort of or I guess without any sort of invasion, invasion or anything like that. So NordVPN basically gives us access to be able to have that much needed privacy. They've got super fast servers, over 5000 in 59 different countries. 
Uh, you also get a 30-day money-back guarantee, and this will protect your data while you're traveling, if you're using like coffee shop Wi-Fi, or if you're at an airport and you're using their Wi-Fi, so that other people can't get in there and jack your info. I recently actually had an experience where someone did end up getting into my account because I wasn't using my VPN, and they actually got a bunch of my info and things like that, and started spamming me with all kinds of crap, and I started getting all kinds of like privacy violation notices from all these other like locked accounts and things like that. So you want to make sure that you don't end up in that case. I travel a lot and I'm bouncing around at coffee shops and things like that. So if I were using the VPN, it would have been a much wiser thing. And the silly thing is I have it. So I just got to freaking turn it on and use it. Um, they're great. There's no data logging. They've got 24-7 customer support and they serve up to uh, six simultaneous connections at a time. Um, and it's compatible with most operating systems. So it's Windows, Mac, Linux, iOS, Android, etc., etc. So um, you can get NordVPN's special holiday deal. If you purchase uh, a two-year plan, uh, then you'll get an additional four months for free. So if you go to nordvpn.com slash show me and use a coupon show me at checkout, then you can get access to this. Again, that's the special holiday deal. If you purchase a two-year plan, you'll get an additional four months for free. If you go to nordvpn.com, com slash show me and use our coupon show me at checkout and of course there's a link in the show notes as well all right now let's chat about this film um do we want to keep talking about spielberg or do we want to kind of jump into i've got a list of all kinds of themes here want to dive into what interests you Austin. i want to hear your takes okay well i guess the first thing let's talk about nostalgia like this is a very derivative film Right? Like, I told you that I got, like, heavy Willy Wonka vibes. Like, even up to the point where the test at the end is, like, do you steal the everlasting gobstopper or not? Do you yeah. sign the contract or not? And then it's like, you passed, my boy! That was the test all along. So there's this, uh -huh. this clear Willy Wonka vibe that is that uh, that the author was kind of, like, deriving off. But then this just hit me, actually, when Raymond was talking. The Easter egg. What's the final challenge? The final challenge is to play that Atari game, and it's not to win. Everybody else is trying to win. But rather, it's just about journeying through to find all of the Easter eggs. Is this film also not similarly just about simply indulging in all of the Easter eggs. So it's kind of being meta in that sense where it's a performative world. It's not about trying to accomplish a task, but rather the reader is just allowed to, or the viewer is just allowed to indulge in all of the Easter eggs. And then that's what the point, if you will, of the story is. It's not about finding the end. It's not about some sort of goal. It's rather just about the journey. It's the journey. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. And well, you're right. Everywhere you look in this movie is an Easter egg. I'm, there, I'm sure there's tons of stuff that only the graphic designers will ever know. Uh, this movie is an Easter egg filled with Easter eggs. Yes. yes. It's it's the Russian doll of Easter eggs. <laughs> it is. It is, totally. Yeah. What do we think, Raymond? Um. Yeah, I mean, it's got a bunch of shit crammed into it, that's for sure. Is this bad? Uh, is no. the movie and, bad? And, and, and I would, no, the I would Easter argue, egg thing. Uh, that it's crammed in there and it's for fanboys well, and fangirls I, and stuff. No, it's cool. It's total sensory overload. And and I would argue that it's uh, in terms of using the word derivative because like this stuff has – this movie has stuff I have never seen or at least a mashup of stuff I've never seen, which I guess is derivative. But like that's something new and different and fresh. You know, that's what they're looking for in Hollywood, baby. It's the, it's yeah. the old but new and different. You know, so I'd never seen a, a post-apocalyptic Willy Wonka film set in virtual <laughs> reality. That's exactly like, what I'm it sorry, is. is that movie get made all the time? You know, like uh, uh, to me, that's a pretty 
fresh concept with Steven Spielberg based on a book that's popular. To me, it had all the cat. I can uh, hear the, the elevator pitch cool right now. The movie. producer is standing sure, there yeah. at the studio, and they're like, "It's Willy Wonka meets Blade Runner meets Hunger Games." You know, and they're like, "They're like, <laughs> <Right>. cha-ching." <laughs> I, I think uh, that where do I sign? Yeah, this this as a film, I, I think once again, I think it works. I I, I think it goes by uh, swimmingly enough, and I also think there is a place for movies like this. Um, that are you yeah. know heavy on nostalgia and give the people what they want, and they're just pure sugar. Um, I think the problem is is that this movie kind of stands at this point as like not that this had this really huge cultural footprint as a film because I think that it's you know it's not like everyone went and saw this. This wasn't Avatar, um, but I think it is indicative of the the degree to which our entire pop culture now kind of subsists on just regurgitating and uh reinventing past uh ip and stuff so i do think that uh, mm. there is a place for movies like this but it, it does bother me that there seems to only be a place for movies like this anymore where like everything has to be based on some kind of ip even something like this that is uh, a, a whole mishmash of a bunch of different influences and and uh, pop culture references is still it's based on a book, um, which is based on, like you said, it's it's got the touches of Willy Wonka, and you know, so I, I do I do understand that there is a place in an audience for a movie like this, and I don't want to poo poo it because, like I said, I I had a fun time with it uh, both times I watched it, but I guess it it does stand as a sort of a symbol of what our popular culture output has become now which is just kind of this this constant cycle of there's really no innovation there's just regurgitation and I always wonder the way that like our childhoods are being pilfered for contemporary audiences right now what the hell are people going to make movies about in 30 years is it still going to be like reheated leftovers from our childhood for for folks yeah yes and no for folks it's who gonna are be star then. wars 59 or whatever but it's you make you bring up an interesting point and it is actually kind of ironic that we're doing this movie this week because what just happened with warner brothers is literally one of the final nails in the coffin of movie going cinema uh uh Right, where they're literally going to release all their movies next year, day and day on their streaming platform and in the theaters if they exist. And if everyone does that, literally the only movies getting made are movies like Ready Player One, or at least being released in theaters. All the good shit, the golden age is still going to be on Netflix and streaming and whatever, but that's a whole other conversation. But yes, I think that, that unfortunately, not to be a doomsdayer, I think that that is the future of going out to the movies is only seeing some like, oh, hey, let's let's see Bill and Ted, you know, uh, nine, you know, or, because I yeah. saw because my grand my grandparents showed me Bill and Ted. I remember that. That's the only thing that's worth spending the boatloads yeah. of money it's going to cost to market a big cinematic experience anymore or Avatar or whatever. Um, every so new yeah, chapter of sucks. Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe will still have a big theatrical opening, I think. But for the most part, you know, smaller, more innovative, or just original films are increasingly going to get squeezed out. Well, they're all going to be on streaming services, and the only bad part about that, which is awesome, they're getting made. It really is. There's so much awesome shit. Yeah, there's made. pros it's and just cons. That, yeah. 
it, it, it's just that the the whole act and process of going out and seeing it with a group of people, which is a different thing, uh, is going to be unfortunately lost for those kind of movies. But I think that it'll be kind of fashionable at some point. There's going to drive-ins are making a comeback sure. right now. I think there's going to be I, that brings up roads. an interesting thing about this movie, though, is that like yes, everyone is obsessed with '80s pop culture because they're all trying to essentially navigate. Uh, Mark Rylance's brain but right. it is kind of weird to me that that like there is apparently just a cultural black hole between 1990 and 2045 in this movie's chronology because mm. there's no one there's no one who's walking other than like the Iron Giant which is probably the most the most uh, recent major reference in the movie there's there's no one who's walking around well but that's his arrested uh, development right that's mark rylance's well, character holiday it's i he, mean it's it's, it's his... fucking ernest klein's arrested development but absolutely well, yeah, yeah. mark rylance is essentially his yeah that's the point yeah and so he's just trying to to make his childhood last forever and that's why that music is used that's why that time period is used that's why it's his favorite game played 100%. on the atari Right, so and that in is a sense, one of it one of the big the purpose, and then that's why his whole his whole thing is like I regret that I didn't live my life. I regret that I didn't go after Kira. I have all of these regrets. You don't make the same mistake as me because you will be stunted like I have been. Yeah, I mean the the movie does kind of pay lip service to that. I guess I'm also coming into this having sped through the book over the weekend, which is uh, uh, almost not in an obscene or graphic way. It's like weirdly masturbatory. Because in the way that the in the way that the movie can kind of glide over some of that stuff, it doesn't it doesn't lay on the the references and the the research. The the book essentially just is a a, a vessel for research, and it's this fantasy novel in which you know Ernest Klein's magnum opus is a world in which everyone is just as obsessed with all of his favorite things as he is, and not only that, but the key, the literal key to becoming one of the richest, most influential and famous people in the world is just knowing all the dumb 80s bullshit that he's obsessed with. <laughs> like, it's just it's just so clearly... Uh, or maybe just the a, key is the shout-out to Ferris Bueller, and sometimes you gotta just stop and pay attention to what's around you. Well, I mean, you haven't read the fucking book. I, like, the, the, movie, the movie has that lip service at the end where they go like, oh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's shut off, which is it opens up its own can of worms because they make clear that people like work and go to school in the Oasis. So I don't know what their fucking plan is for those days. Um, but it, in, the, in the book, it almost ends anticlimactically because it's literally just like he wins... And then he goes out and meets Artemis and they kiss and that's just kind of it. Like they still have Mark Rylance's character in Iraq. He says, you know, uh, reality is what's real or whatever. But then uh, Wade goes out and he goes, hey, this is uh, pretty, pretty cool here. We uh, we own the big video game now. And she's hey, man, like, yeah, gamers, it's great. Gamers deserve love, bro. That's what the story is about. <laughs> I, get, I get that. But it just you get shit on because you're playing your video games. But don't worry. You deserve love, too. OK, I get I get that. But it's just. It doesn't even have the, like, the, the other thing, too, that's particularly galling about the book that they kind of elide in the movie is that everything beyond the VR headset is just a absolute fucking chaos and apocalypse and everything just fucking sucks completely. So it, it's one of those things where, like, e even that that one line at the end that oh, reality is what's real is like, yeah, that's why we're all here. Cause reality fucking sucks. Like the, the, the book is at war with its own ideology at certain points. I think it's just mm. because it doesn't have a really clear 
a, a really clear sense of what it's trying to communicate other than like Ernest Klein knows a lot about anime. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it has a very clear um, understanding of like the social and political backdrop no. that the film requires. No, like it requires whatsoever. clearly some sort of like dystopian economic, maybe um, climate, maybe um, uh, war. It, 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 it necessitates that. And then it's like, yeah, but don't worry, we don't actually talk about fixing that shit because everyone's just escaping. And then I get what it's trying to say. It's trying to say, look, like we're all trying to escape the hardships of reality by going into our digital lives. And that's where we get these like sensory rushes of dopamine and enjoyment and we can be anybody you want and you have these tasks and purpose and stuff like that but if it neglects what's going on behind the curtain so to speak like when you peel back and see that the wizard who the wizard is or you go back and see the desert of the real in matrix terms i mean there's all clearly this stuff is in there too right the platonic division between the real and the irreal or the unreal right so like when you peel back and you go to the real there's not at least from the film what i could tell there wasn't much that gave me an understanding of the actual world of the real except for we got a greedy corporation and then we got a bunch of people who they want to use this technology for good rather than for exploitation, whereas the greedy corporation just wants to do it to profit a lot. And that's a very sort of like flimsy and kind of superficial. I'd love more, you know? But even even with that, the the I think the story overall is once again at war with itself because they they're they spend the whole movie decrying IOI as this, you know, faceless, nameless, fascistic gestalt. But I mean, all the Gunters are essentially a mirror version of that. They're all trying to achieve this uh, the same goal through similar means, which is that they're creating this hive mind of 80s pop culture ephemera. They're all obsessed with the same thing. They're all ideologically identical, too. So it's like, on one hand, yeah, you want to see them control the Oasis if the alternative is IOI because they're going to you know, cover the HUDs with ads and they're, you know, they're, they're going to run it into the ground or whatever. But it's still one of the it's still kind of revealing to me that the answer to this nameless, faceless, ideologically identical villain is uh, a, 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 a somewhat less nameless, faceless, ideologically identical protagonist uh, that they're and, and the only reason that they're not completely nameless and faceless is because they can all choose from several different 80s appropriate skins and that's it. I uh, I would push back uh, um, not on what you just said, but about the on the reference heaviness of this movie and stuff, and and on that being a bad thing, and and mm. I'd say it's a it's a very timeless thing, really. Mm. Like in terms of right, this is just about video games and comic book characters, but just replace that with you know westerns and cowboys and Vikings and stuff. It's it's people being obsessed with the stories and myths and, and escapism in general. It's about escapism and whatever. And and I think it just feels different when you replace the old myths of yesteryear with the weird shit from the eighties that is so specific and 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 all of a sudden, you know all about the making of it and the people involved. And so it's like takes on a different life. Um, and people are more obsessed with it now because I guess, you know, there's more leisure time. I don't know. Uh, uh, so, yeah, there's yeah. The, I, I think that, that, that this is not as, just as no much of a, yeah. a modern new age thing as it is. I think that this is just a crazy on crack version of of people being obsessed with stories and escapism and not their their own lives i was thinking the same thing ryan and i mean i'll I'll phrase it a little bit differently but i want to basically say like what piece of art isn't derivative right like you look at a painting 
from like Byzantine uh, uh, icons and they're all using images and they're all using um, symbols and they're using figures that have been used previously. You look at Michelangelo in the beginning of the Renaissance when it starts to be more interested in like the uniqueness of the kind of like auteur of the of the individual author. They're still deriving a lot of information from story, from myth, from um, from humanity, from philosophy, from their own experience. Then you kind of move on into the modern world of art and uh, uh, you kind of look at someone like Picasso. What is he doing? He's sort of like deconstructing that, but nevertheless, he's still deriving, you know, uh, resources from shapes and color and light. So the question is this: What's the fundamental difference between those forms of art? Or we could say, like, let's look at a film like Apocalypse Now that's derived from the Heart of Darkness, right? You know, a, a famous novel that itself is derived from these ideas of the man of, of, of wilderness uh, kind of being taken over and, and descending into madness because of nature and the state of nature, which is a very Hobbesian idea. So then the question is this. I'm not saying that there's no difference. The question is, is this would be the interesting way to think about it. What is the difference between those forms of derivation and then this form of derivation? Is it that it's deriving... Um, it's information not from humanity and from stories that have meaning and cultural potency, but rather it's just deriving um, a bunch of commodities and then repackaging those commodities in the form of Robocop, a pop song, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then here's the, the last question is, is, is that not already too critical? But it's rather what Klein is saying, the Rylance character maybe is saying, is that even in the midst of all of that supposed superficiality, we can still enjoy the creativity of Robocop and of a Tears for Fears song and of, you know, all these things. And that there's actually humanity in those things. We just need to better attune ourselves to them. Does that make sense? Like, Ryan, is that kind of what yeah, you're getting at? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It does make perfect sense, but but I would say that there's two halves to that story that you're telling. There's, there's uh, uh, if you if you put two things together and derive two things, you've made something else, you know, even though, yes, it is different, but you have created and, and it has a different effect than the two things if they were separately, you know, on the audience. As an editor, I juxtapose things all the time and that's my job, you know, it's like you take one thing, you take another thing, you make a new thing and it's cool. Uh, uh, and yes, you didn't create the, the raw products, but that doesn't mean that your new thing isn't awesome. However, the it, what I think get people, people get really tired of is just the reference for the sake of reference just like oh oh i get i i i know about that you know about that you re, you put that in there that's funny right there was like that whole chain of parody movies where literally the jokes every time was oh that that movie from last year that character that just came in exists. on screen remember yeah, yeah, that yeah like that i think is 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 really the synthesis of what people are tired of and i don't think that that is what ready player one is even though it seems like it with all the you have to know the characters to really get what's going on, and that is part of it. And that shouldn't be, uh, you know, I, well, I say that I, I say that shouldn't be a requirement for art, but you kind of like you're saying, you 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 do need to come to the table with knowing certain things to enjoy certain pieces of art, you know, and that's not for yeah, everyone. I mean, I I agree with you guys. Obviously, like there is there is no such thing as a wholly original piece of art, you know. All art is synthesis and alchemy and. Uh, you know, someone in the chat just brought up that uh, Dr. Gamelove said uh, it's derivative, sure, but art can still be creative despite that. And I, uh, you know, you brought up RoboCop, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, that's just a retelling of the Christ narrative uh, in dystopian Detroit. Uh, you know, it, it, like we're 
constantly going to and be. And Christ was uh, Christ was a retelling of the Xanadu narrative from Scientology. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just all recycled <laughs> stuff. I, th- um, I, I was Zinu, you were going to say like like yeah. Xanadu Xanadu's the roller skating movie with uh, Olivia yeah. Newton John. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah, we should cover that one. <laughs> oh, um, God, so good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I think that what what excites me as an audience member and as as an artist myself is just like finding a new way to iterate on those themes and those influences. I mean, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is my all time favorite movie, and watching right. watching no, this it. one and knowing that Ernest Cline was really intentionally thinking about that movie when he was writing this, he says so in several interviews. Mm. Um, I still think that there is a there's a weird disconnect between the the ways in which these fantasies are realized that like both are you know ostensibly egalitarian contests uh but obviously they are going to favor the rich and the privileged who can afford to uh get the best suit and the best gear and the best headset or can afford to buy chocolate by the truckloads in the in uh, the example of Willy Wonka uh, specifically with Veruca Salt her her dad you know switches his entire nutshelling factory into a chocolate opening factory. But I think what is so great about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory that they never even get anywhere near, and this isn't the book or the movie's project, so I understand, but Charlie doesn't go into the Chocolate Factory thinking he's going to win the Chocolate Factory. He's just a kid who's had a miserable life, and he doesn't even like chocolate that much, so I don't think he even cares much about the lifetime supply of chocolate. He just wants one good thing to happen in his life. And he even tells Mr. Turkentine, I don't care much for chocolate. I've only opened two. Like, so I wish that there was just a, a like, someone, you know, it would be great if the main character in this was someone who was like, yeah, I don't really like this 80s stuff, but like, fuck, my life sucks and I'm out to get mine and this is my only way out of the stacks. So if I'm going to watch a movie a day, I may as well make it one of Halliday's favorites. And uh, like, if there were something that were more... just like just one degree removed where the characters were scrutinizing this stuff rather than all just just completely absorbing it full bore and and making all of Halliday's favorite things into their favorite things like it's okay for you to just be playing the game you don't have to like all this stuff it's why I actually like in the shining scene H says I don't like scary movies and I like that that character isn't so devoted to this game that they were willing to dig into a bunch of horror movies just for the sake of playing the game better. Like, that that hints at some aspect of her character. The technology of the world of Oasis is never questioned, right? It is a good, right? It's just that it can be used for bad. And that's what, like, Sorrento wants to do, is he wants to use it for uh, his own profit. But the idea of escaping from the problems of the world into a digital platform isn't bad per se, it's good. It is It is itself a good, just like sugar is okay and beer is good and sex is good and hanging out with friends is good. But if that's all you do, then you kind of, you fall into one ditch as opposed to kind of sure. another, right? And so that's the idea. All is that, things that, in moderation, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's like even digital technology, the platform is good. You can find friends there. Like Wade doesn't have any friends, but H is his friend, right? And he can't find yeah. love in the quote real world because his real world is destitute, but he finds love in Artemis slash Samantha. So it's kind of like, yeah. the, it is a medium for good. It just needs to be in the hands of a benevolent group, which is also kind of interesting that 
then, right? So I'm really curious, like what the second book does, and I'm sure there'll be a second film that comes out. Um, so like, how does that yeah, happen now, right? Like, like now that it's in the hands of the the this this group of five that are benevolent, like and and Simon Pegg, how are they going to run things? And it, is it going to be like clearly it's going to have to be another bad guy? So, yeah, will it corrupt them? Yeah, something's going to have to happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just one of those, one of those things that sticks out to me, especially on a rewatch is that these people do not succeed on their own merits. They succeed by essentially becoming the creator of Oasis. And then they become the owners of, of Oasis. Like, you know, I don't, I don't really know. Finding Easter eggs is hard. No, I understand, but it's but what I'm saying is like they they find those Easter eggs by just absorbing all of the Halliday logic or knowledge that they possibly can. Like I want to know who these people were before they all set out on their individual missions to become James Halliday. Like it, you never get a sense of that because they're all forcing themselves to be as obsessed with the stuff that he was obsessed with in the hope that they're going to win this contest. I uh, I do like the the reveal when y you've seen all these people's avatars the whole movie and then you meet them in real life because I think that uh, uh, in the final for third of the film because you do kind of get that moment where you see it, you see everyone uh, you don't get a lot of exposition about who they are as people but you do you're like oh that's the, that that person matches up to that person what that person's that person and it's I don't know. Uh, it messes with your expectations, and then uh, how they act in the uh, the final third uh, as real people is uh, a cool dynamic when they when they're not as avatars. I don't know. I, I thought that that Let me they, ask do, this. they do have a good they do have a good out of Oasis chemistry when they're all in the van together. I like the cast. Yeah. So let me ask you this: Why is this film categorized as dystopian rather than potentially utopian? Now, is it just because the real world is like super crowded and it kind of looks a little bit barren? Is that what categorizes it as dystopian, or is there something that actually? that essentially this future world is not a world that we should want. Or, because it seems to me that it could kind of be both utopian and dystopian. If the right people are running Oasis and you find that balance, then is this not some sort of hopeful utopian vision of what the world could be like? I mean... Uh... No, because they're living in a junkyard because they and they can't go anywhere, and so they can only play these video games. This is the last resort. This is just... This is what we're doing now. This is pandemic times. We're just like... Well, I can't leave my house. Yeah, Might as well that's a good point, Ryan. survive and invent Oasis. And let's all hang out there and have culture there. And and it, it, uh, real quick, it's interesting. You had said it earlier that kind of culture and time stops at a certain point. Like think about being in a dystopian future. If everything literally was we were locked in our house, there's no more stuff getting really produced except stuff in houses. So all culture in terms of like the what we're used to is thinking about pop culture kind of ends at whenever the apocalypse happens and then the rest of culture from then on is just people thinking about looking at zoom calls and stuff people looking at skype uh uh screens like i guess you could there's probably ways to make cool there's ways to make videos inside your house whatever i'm just you guys get what yeah. my point. Yeah, no, yeah, no, yeah. Like, I get what you're saying, but I think that that is you bring up a great point, Ryan. That I, I I've kind of had in my head, not necessarily just surrounding the pandemic, but we are. I mean, we're at this point in so many words. Like we have every every minute of uh, recorded history is at our fingertips if you're willing to spend enough time on Google. Like any any movie, TV show, book, video game. Like we we have immediate access to all of it. 
and it's just one of those things where it's like hey we we have everything and no time in which to use it and it's so I, I don't know. I think that if that gets to uh, your question about why this is a dystopian instead yeah. of a utopian film, is that like, I mean, the, the the utopia is not an oasis. It's a fucking mirage. Mm, very well said. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay. Um, we've got, we're going to go to the mailbag here, but before we go to the mailbag, we have a sort of special guest audio from a director by the name of Keir Seward, award-winning director based in the UK. He's also part of the BAFTA crew for 2021. Um, he's a fantastic filmmaker. You can check his stuff out online. He runs breaking point flicks and stuff like that, but he's also one of those guys like Ryan and Raymond where they just have encyclopedic knowledges of film and cinema and stuff like that. And what he said is he thinks that Ready Player One is actually like the death of cinema. Now, that's a very sort of harsh take, but if we play the tape, uh, it's a couple minutes long, let's just hear what his thoughts are, and we'll see if we can engage with it a tad afterwards. Okay, so keep in mind, I haven't seen this in about a year. Oh, no, a couple of years. It's been a while. Anyway, um, I saw it when it came out, you know, etc. Um, but what I would say is that ultimately, sure, like, as a film, it's fine. It's like three stars. It was mildly okay. I remember it being fine, you know, in terms of you know, the use of CGI and everything, it's not bad. And, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff that was kind of overblown about it. But I would say that for me, it's actually part of what I think is a worrying trend of basically what big studio cinema has become, which is the, you know, the prevalence of IP. So it is a movie that is built totally and completely on IP and pure nostalgia. And the idea behind it is that everything about it validates you as a person because you only care about the things you like and you're only validated through those things, which to me is worrying because as someone who thinks that, yeah, that's, that's, that the importance of art is um, the ability for things to go forward, to create new things. To me, it's about validating and saying, no, the only thing that matters are things that already exist and things that are recognizable. It doesn't even matter if those things even make sense or work with it. So for instance, you have something like the Iron Giant, which is being utilized in a way that doesn't even work in terms of how the Iron Giant is supposed to exist. And so ultimately what it looks to me at is the whole thing is like a certain kind of call and response thing of like how, uh, you know, like if you've got a baby and you, you start, you know, sort of showing it things, it laughs and it claps because it recognizes those things. And that is what we are becoming as a society where all art is simply measured by the fact of whether it triggers that little thing in your brain that says, yes, I recognize that. I liked that thing. Therefore, it's good. But it, in and of itself is a hollow and fairly useless property. It is something that is all about how you as the individual, because there are things that you recognize and you care about, therefore you are good. So it is validating a lot of really, really simplistic ideas about how film and media should be created. So while it is in and of itself perfectly fine as, in, as a sort of, uh, you know, adventure thing it is worrying in terms of the notion of it is validating the worst kind of 
uh, ways that people imbibe and perceive media currently. And I also just fundamentally don't think Steven Spielberg should be making films about how he, how people should be nostalgic for Steven Spielberg movies. But I, and, and, and I will say that I also think that Steven Spielberg as a director, this is not what he's good at anymore. Like he's, you know, an, an eternally great craftsman, but what Steven Spielberg is great at is crafting great adult dramas. And he's one of the few people still doing that at a high budget where they can, with, with the sort of, with, with great casts and a good amount of prestige and work put into them. And, you know, I would far rather see Steven Spielberg making things like The Post, um, Bridge of Spies, um, you know, Lincoln, rather than spending his time making things like this, which to me, feels ultimately like it is a, a, a repeating of just kind of, you know, tropes and stuff that we've seen from the past. You know, there's much more interesting directors out there to be making this sort of stuff. And I, I also just kind of think that this is also based off a, a fundamentally terrible book. Like, I would really advise you to find an ex excerpt of the book because it is embarrassing how badly that thing is written. Anyway, those are just my thoughts. All right. That I mean, was great. Yeah. So we, we've touched on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. What Sorry, do we think? No, no, I was just going to ask you, what, up, what do we think? Yeah. He, he brought up the Iron Giant, and this actually uh, dovetails with something that uh, Dr. Game Love said in the comments that copyright would tear the Oasis apart. Uh, and <laughs> in, the, in the book, all the characters have big robots. They're all like wearing Gundams, and uh, one of them turns into Ultraman. Uh, one of them is Leopardon from uh, Japanese Spider Man. And I think you know, those wouldn't do as well with a big American audience. And also, once again, the the only uh, huge giant robot from, like, fucking the 90s, which is where culture caps off in this movie, is the Iron <laughs> Giant. So they have to stick her in that one. And uh, they do mention the Iron Giant in the book, though. So I don't, I don't know. That that probably just plays well with the, uh, the audience there. I definitely agree with the sentiment of that guy a lot. I thought that was really well said. I thought it was a well-reasoned uh, voicemail. Yeah. However, I would say that that the whole, you know, we're only, the point I made earlier, no one likes the, oh, that's just a reference that I get. No one likes that. That's cheap and whatever, mm. hack. But I would say that the, the human, you know, movies, what, are supposed to be about the human condition, I've heard. Mm. And what is the human condition today in 2020? Humans watch a fuck ton of movies and media and video games. And that is a lot of people's lives, you know, in around the world. Uh, so uh, especially now when you're locked in your house. So I, I think that making movies about that, making movies about people's love for that stuff isn't a stretch now. I think that, that it is such so saturated in our lives for better or for worse that it makes sense to analyze it, hopefully critically, and not just oh, look at that Ninja Turtle. You know, I get, uh, I, I, I grew up on that kind of thing. I, I think it's cool to make stuff like, like this. Although it is totally a popcorn movie. There's not much to say in this movie. Other, you know, it is. So it's not the best example. No, but, I, I agree. Yeah. Like I said at the beginning, I, I think there's definitely a place for movies like this. It was, you know, it was a lot of fun. But uh, I, I think the, the issue we're running into, uh, from at least from a filmmaker's perspective uh, that I, I think the, uh, the the voicemail there, Austin's friend, was kind of getting at is that 
these kinds of movies just take up so much oxygen now. And I can see why the culture is so stunted with within the world of this movie is just like, well, at a certain point, the, the culture just becomes so homogenized and, and so circular. And it's just these things being reiterated upon over and over again. So like, of course, that's what everyone's still obsessed with in 2045. They probably just got more and more remakes of those for the ensuing four decades or whatever. I, uh, I I recently have read a really interesting book by um, I've read it actually a handful of times and I've listened to it on audiobook. I always recommend it for artists and creatives. It's called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Great, he great also, book. Yeah, yeah, great book, right? Uh, the foreword is written by Robert McKee. And one of the things that Pressfield talks about is that Robert McKee's definition of a hack is an artist who panders to the audience or who condescends to the audience. And I thought that there was something really interesting in that. Whereas the true artist for McKee, and Pressfield is trying to make this similar point, is that it's something that Pressfield is a bit of a mystic. So he talks about the muse coming upon the artist, right? Um, it's that idea of inspiration and then being honest and authentic to yourself. Whereas the hack is the one who's constantly testing the market to say what is viable and what we might say is what is profitable. And for me, that's the distinction that I brought up earlier is what's the difference between like the derivative of storytelling in Michelangelo uh, or in like Apocalypse Now versus the derivatives, uh, the derivative kind of filmmaking of this film is, is it done according to that where it's just simply pandering to the audience in order to make us feel good so that it puts butts in the seats so that it can then be a four quadrant film so that then it can make more money, which to me is what that's, oh, that's definitely the thing. That. Oh, a hundred percent. And that's where I become a little bit less Def, uh, I want to defend the film. I less become an advocate for it because I still want to believe in the purity of the artist. But then at the same time, I'm also down for fun shit. So it's kind of like I'm I'm torn here. You know what I mean? That's kind of where I'm at. So that'll be the last thing I say. And then you guys have your final points and then we'll go back into the voicemails. I'm good. Um, if I could, uh, yeah. before we jump back into voicemails, I just want to throw out two recommendations. If you like this movie and you like some of the themes in it, but want to see something that goes maybe a little bit deeper, I would highly recommend there's a great short film called uh, Uncanny Valley. It's uh, written and directed by Federico Heller. It came out in 2015. It's like eight minutes long. You can watch it on YouTube. And there's also a really interesting movie directed by Ari Fullman called The Congress, which is about a, a similarly, uh, excuse me, similarly dystopian future. Uh, wherein folks have all uh, escaped into hallucinogenic drugs rather than VR. Um, Congress is weird as fuck. That's a, I, I, really, I, we should, I like that movie. We should talk about that one sometime because I I, uh, I think you would dig that one too, Austin. Cool. Sounds yeah, good. Do that. That's right. I up your just alley, wanted Austin. to throw out those uh, recommendations for listeners at home yeah. that uh, that dig this but might want to go a little bit deeper. Amazing. All right, so let's jump into the voicemails now. If you want to call us, you can call at one. 213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. All right, let's go with Newman, who's from Chicago, who wants to talk about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Hey, Wisecrack, what's up? This is Newman from Chicago. Wanted to respond to your recent Show Me the Meaning podcast on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Someone mentioned that Rooney is from a certain angle in the right because Ferris is a dick and does take advantage and is skating out, running all over, doing what he wants, and everyone believes him. However, I would argue that Rooney is a tool because he allows his personal vendetta against Ferris Bueller to take over his entire day. He abandons the school that he's supposed to be working at. He ignores all the other students that might need his help for whatever, and he just 
goes on this idiotic crusade. So far from being in the right, I think I also would see him as part of this Ferris Bueller obsession complex that the whole town has, the same way the whole school is raising money for him. His name ends up on a water tower. Rooney is the perfect, ineffectual villain to be coming after him, like uh, Wild D. Coyote or Yosemite Sam from Looney Tunes. The guy is, he can't ignore Ferris, and he will never succeed going after Ferris. And so Ferris is just a winner all day forever. So, yeah, those are my thoughts. Love your show. Love your work. Keep up the great work. Take care. Bye. Thank you, Newman. What do we think? I like the Wiley Coyote reference. That's that's actually really good. It is kind of like Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, you know? And every single Especially, time... Um... Yeah, yeah, and, oh, and he's always like, no, it's like he's always falling off the cliff, right? He thinks he's got him, and then whoop, the floor drops out from underneath him. And that may be something that uh, John Hughes is cognizant of, because every time that uh, Ferris and Rooney are face-to-face, that one of them is completely silent. There's like a cartoonish energy between the two of them. That and they, Ferris they never even actually... does, he even does that thing where he runs around the corner, and he like bounces on the foot like he's skidding like the cartoon characters <laughs> do. You know, like like no human yeah. actually runs like that and does that thing, but it is does have a cartoon element to it. And uh, just to uh, just to say at the beginning of that voicemail, I don't think any of us were saying that like Edward Rooney was a good guy or that he had it all together. Um, I, no, uh, I, so I Jess, certainly so Jess uh, from New Girl makes that point, and I brought that up. She says that uh, like she actually thinks that Ferris is really in the wrong, and that Rooney's the good guy because you know Jess from New Girl's job. Yeah, she's a teacher, and then she becomes a principal at some point. And she's oh, like, wait, okay. he's just doing his job, and this is this kid's a brat. Like, come on. I don't know. I don't know that it's a uh, it's a a principal's job or a dean of students' job to leave school for the entire day to to seek out one wily character who you yeah. can't seem to keep in a in a desk or whatever. Well, now, if I remember correctly, it, it's it's not as it's not a one to one with Wiley because Wiley is always chasing the Roadrunner. This is Ferris's like millionth day off from you know he's barely making. Uh, he, Right? Uh, he's already been tardy it's his ninth, this year. It's he's barely going to graduate. Yeah, it's his ninth day. Oh, yeah, day off. ninth yeah. day. But his so grades I are think still this good. is a man on his breaking point. This is a man that has been pushed to the limit, and he's like, all right, I'm not letting this guy get away with one more day. There's no way. I know he is just faking this shit. So if he was doing it on every day, all nine, I'd get it, but uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Okay. Uh, we'll just squeeze in one more uh, email we'll ha- or one more voicemail. I'm sorry. We'll have really quick thoughts about it so that we can close out here soonish. But I just wanted to get to Ramsey, who wants to talk about Goldfinger, because Ramsey is from the UK and has an interesting perspective on James Bond from the British angle. So go ahead, Ramsey. Hi, Wyatt's Crack. Ramsey Hassan here. Long time listener, first time questioner. Third crack at this because I keep getting cut out, but I'll say quickly. Um, I love the episode, I'm talking about the episode of um, Show Me the Meaning about Goldfinger. Um, I loved listening to you, you guys' American point of view of James Bond. I think in England he's a bit of a tricky figure, tricky figure because he's very much like a privileged sort of Eton type set of person. And, um, and, yeah, and, I, and it was really interesting that in the 60s, he came out at the same time as Jean-Luc Carey was doing his stuff, and it was sort of like the darker, more realist take on spy fiction. And a lot of Carey's um, criticisms of Bond, I think, are pretty sound. He, like, he, particularly, he says, um, it's a great mistake to include James Bond in espionage literature because he, most of his um, antics, he acts more like an international gangster going around the world doing all these hits and he doesn't really, he, he's not really part of a political context 
he kind of see, he doesn't really care like who the president of the United States is. He just sees it. He just goes for the targets and gets rid of them. You know, there's no ideology. But um, there is kind of a consumer goods ethic in James Bond where all the mundane things about you can be animated into this wonderful world of espionage. So like your tie can take photographs, your pen can shoot bullets. Um, so it takes out, so it sort of like takes all the um, commercial materialism that was going on in the 50s and 60s um, that you kind of saw amplified in um, like films, like books like Revolutionary Road and um, Talking Heads, What's in the Lifetime, and they talk about you know buying the house or the car and everything, and then finding that empty. But James Bond kind of like turns them magical, like they remain magical in the, the world of James Bond. Um, and also, he's kind of really interesting comparing him to the other 60s British icon, which was Doctor Who where they're both sort of like flip sides of the same coin, where James Bond is sort of like the imperialist um, side, where he's going around bonking off <laughs> any enemies of Britain, whereas Doctor Who's kind of like going around educating people and getting them into the propaganda kind of a way. Um, yeah, so I just want to share those. Um, and, yeah, good luck and keep doing all the cool stuff. Laters. Bye. Great voicemail. We don't have time to talk about it too much, but uh, that was lovely. So thank you so much for that. Again, if you want to reach out to us, you can at 12135348807. You can also email us, movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Give us your flamiest of flame spicy takes about Ready Player One or anything else in our back catalog, and uh, we'll definitely present them online. So, all right, Raymond, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. That's C-R-E-A-M-A-T-O-R-I-A. And I uh, just want to take a second to acknowledge uh, Ryan Gum in the chat just said, uh, Ready Player One is King Arthur in a future where pop culture grew with atheism and became religion. Gentlemen, just like in the movie, the answer was right in front of us the whole time. <laughs> that, is, that is the Easter egg. That is the Easter egg at the center of this movie. We weren't even paying attention to the main character's name. There are several King Arthur illusions in this uh, in this book and movie. Uh, I think Ryan Gum hit the nail on the head in uh, a much more succinct way than we could handle in an hour. Thank you, Ryan Gum. All right, Ryan. Ryan from Funhouse. Red State Ryan. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, I put out shorts on YouTube uh, uh, whenever I can. Ryan Shorts. And um, you can look at that. Uh, you can also find me on Funhouse for once in a while. I want to respond. That caller made a bunch of good points. Wish we could talk about the caller thing more. But yeah, I guess it's at the end. But I would say I I, I, I had never really considered the whole class element of James Bond. Yes. Who is? You know, we we never really see James Bond day to day. It's more on his missions and stuff. So uh, yeah, it's interesting to hear from a, a British person's perspective on on the people's criticisms of James Bond. Yeah, we got great emails from people from Germany and from all over the world, too, who are asking questions about, like, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. We got all kinds of good stuff coming in, so we just can't always get to everything, but we will work through the back catalog, and uh, and hopefully we can get to as many as possible. So Maybe, uh, uh, maybe we can do a mailbag sometime soon. One of these days, yeah. Uh, you can find me, if you want, on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. You can also find me on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. We love you. Ryan, send us out, brother. Goodbye from the Oasis! Peace. You're my wonder wall. <laughs> <laughs>